Hello and welcome in to week eight of the spring 2023 Daniel Curriculum Podcast. My name is Landon, as always, and I am here with my friend Rachel. Hey everyone. And she is going to be walking us through Daniel 8. Last week, our friend Rick was on talking about Daniel 7, uh, which marked a little bit of a transition, but now we're kind of even fully making that transition into uh, the back half of Daniel and some different type of literature. So um, Rachel, if you would just recap a little bit for where we were last week. Yeah. So this week we are in Daniel's second dream. And last week we talked about Daniel's first dream. And these are kind of connected, but also this week is kind of starting its own new thing. So last week, the dream focused more on how God is going to vindicate vindicate his people who are in exile in Babylon and how he's going to bring them back from exile back to Jerusalem. And then this week, we kind of see this turn. We even see a turn in the language because last week's passage and the chapters before were written in Aramaic. This week we're back in Hebrew, which is good for me because I don't know Aramaic, but I know some Hebrew. Heck yeah. So let's go. Um, So now we're going to focus a bit more on when that's going to happen. And so these apocalyptic symbols that we're seeing in in last week and this week's um, texts are very symbolic in their unfolding history. And so it's not literal things that we're going to be looking at necessarily. It's these symbols that are showing us what's going to happen in the future. And it's really cool, as we'll see a little later, how all that actually happened, even though it was a prophecy for Daniel. Cool. Sweet. So talking about Daniel 8, um, maybe dive in a little bit to what happens in Daniel 8. Well, I've heard these before, and I know you're going to ask me about red flags later. So is it okay if I start with a red flag before I even dive in? 100%. So my professors at the seminary always tell me this really good piece of advice. A text without a context is a pretext for saying whatever you want. Hmm. And so... We say that one more time. <laughs> that was good. A text without a context is a pretext for saying whatever you want. And this happens a lot with apocalyptic literature where we have all these wild kind of chaotic things being said and we're trying to figure out what to do with them. Yeah. And so people will say some wild things. And I mean, I've definitely done it in the past before. And so what we really want to refrain from is just coming to conclusions based on what is meant to be symbolic. And so seeking context about this passage and continue to seek context about the passage you even talked about last week is really going to be helpful in understanding this text well and understanding it in the way that it was meant to be read by mm. the original author. And so I just want to put that red flag out there. Yeah, it's good. I think even in like a, a group discussion setting, it's really mm-hmm. on everyone to make sure that we're doing the proper work ahead of time and giving ourselves the proper context because it really only takes one person to take that group conversation and get it a little bit out in la-la land. Yes, for sure. So let's keep each other accountable on that. But on to chapter eight, I'm really excited about this week because it foreshadows a piece of history that we don't learn a lot in the church because yeah. a lot of the history that is being foretold in Daniel 8 happens in between the two testaments. And so sometimes people will call this the intertestamental period. It's the 400 years that happen after the last words of Malachi and then before Matthew picks up with the life of Jesus. Yeah. And so there's four years of no scriptures, kind of silence, people will often call it. 400 years. Yes. 
and we often don't know what to do with it or we just don't even think about it. Yeah. Before I went to seminary, I had no idea. I didn't even <laughs> care. I had no idea to even think about that. Right. So I love this passage that helps us to consider that and to really think about how that time framed the world for that Jesus enters yeah. um, in the first century. So I'm really excited to talk about this. So again, this is a little chaotic, but it is a dream and we are going to look at symbols. And so we enter in and you get two beasts coming in, right? Classic, get, classic yes. dream. <laughs> you got a ram and you got a goat. They don't really seem like beasts in our mind. It's maybe like a sheep and a goat, but they are. And I'm sure they were quite big in the dream. I don't know. They have these huge horns, probably really scary. I don't know. Let I didn't your see imagination. The dream. Yeah. <laughs> Let it take you wherever you would like, yeah. I guess. Um, so the first one is the ram. And later on, Gabriel kind of helps us out and helps Daniel out and gives us what these animals are. And so at least what they represent. And so you have this ram and it has two horns. And since this is Old Testament literature, we know that this is going to symbolize a leader. Rams and goats generally in the Old Testament symbolize leaders. Okay, they symbolize helpful. power, authority. I mean, think about King David. He's often attributed as a sheep mm. um, and shepherding with all that kind of imagery. So we're on that vein. So we have a ram with two horns. One's short, one's long. So one is Medea. It's an ancient um, empire. And the other is Persia, another ancient empire. Persia is longer because it plays a major role in the historical unfolding that is about to happen for the Israelites because it is Persia that inevitably releases Israel out of exile from Babylon. Okay. So then we have a goat. The goat comes in and goats are super fierce. Um, they're honestly more scary than sheep or rams. So, um, the goat is going to be something a bit more fierce, which is the Greek empire. And if you ever heard of the name Alexander the Great, he's crazy. He's so interesting to learn to learn about. He literally conquers the whole span of like the ancient Near East in like 10 years. It's insane. And so we have this ram that's mainly um, representing Persia, but also Medea. And then we have this goat who's representing Alexander the Great. And then we also have the Israelites who are in exile. Um, so the Persian king, Cyrus, he talked about in Isaiah, yeah. um, he frees Israel from exile. So, well, he, sorry, let me back up. Yeah. Persia takes over Babylon. Yep. Then King Cyrus of Persia frees Israel from exile. And so it's because of this ram that they're released. Yeah. So it's like um, foreshadowing of their release yes, from exile in Babylon. For sure. That they're currently in. But then it doesn't say Persia although that was all nice and good. Then we have Alexander the Great, the uh -huh. goat. <laughs> he comes in. Not the greatest of all time. Yeah, but the just goat. the goat. <laughs> and he comes in and he conquers all the way down south to Egypt, all the way across east to the Indus River. It's nuts. I don't know how he did all that in ho on horseback in 10 years. <laughs> it puzzles us all, but he did it. Yeah. But then suddenly dies when he gets to Persia. And then his kingdom is split up into four empires okay. dedicated to his four trusted generals. And what happens to the ram's horn? It breaks into four pieces in verse eight. Hmm. That's the four empires of the Greek empire after Alexander the Great dies. 
And so then after that, in verse 9, we have this little horn that sweeps in. And that is um, Antiochus of the Seleucid Empire. And he's awful. He comes, the Seleucid Empire kind of was over the area near Persia. He conquers all the way across and gets to Israel and just gives them a horrible time. No more peace for the Israelites. So he builds a temple to Zeus, which is the great God in Jerusalem, where the Jews worship Yahweh. And he sacrifices a pig on their altar. And a pig, as some of you may know, is a very unclean animal Mm. in the Jewish faith. You do not make sacrifices with it. You do not eat its flesh. It's unclean. And so he defiles their altar. And so when we see like verse nine through I think 15, we see like this, it almost kind of seems cosmic at times, but it's like he opposed an attack that was spiritual as Mm -hmm. well, because he destroyed their um, connection to God at the temple. And so it's all a big deal. But uh, and not unintentional either. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He did yeah. it on purpose. And so the Israelites don't have their normal connection and ability to communicate with Yahweh yeah. because it has to be cleansed and it needs time for cleansing. And so it is like a spiritual attack. And then we end with a bunch of language about the end time and distant days. And we can say a lot of things about that, but from a historical perspective, it seems like it's talking about the end of tyrants because we've had all these empires popping up and going away, Babylon, Persia, the Seleucids, but they all fall. All of the tyrants fall. And that is a great hope to the Israelites Hmm. who during this intertestamental period had 10 years of peace. Yeah, That's all they had before Jesus came. Yeah, it's like occupation after occupation, yes. and we even see this even when Jesus does come um, with the Roman Empire as well. So um, mm-hmm. the Israelites, in some ways, just can't catch a break. Yes, for sure. Uh, but but it seems that they even have this resiliency of a people living in exile, where even though it's not ideal, they know how to do it. Yes, and know how to remain faithful in the midst of it. For sure. So as you process all this, uh, as you read this week's passage, what really popped out to you, or what got you excited about it? I think. So I also have been doing a lot of study in um, the second portion of Isaiah. And these are very connected texts because they prophesy a lot about the return from exile. Yeah. And in both of them, it's very clear that God is intimately concerned with the unfolding of history. Hmm. And he is very concerned with the immediate circumstances of the Israelites and with us. Like yeah. God cares and he cares about our circumstances. He cares on what's going to happen to us in a couple years. He cares about what's going on in Ukraine. He cares about how that unfolds. And he is present through it and that he is going to make good of our circumstances. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we can think a lot of God on a a micro level, which I think he is very intimately involved in the micro. Um, But I think in even this vision, we see how he's involved in the macro of like the movements of kingdoms over time and how even God's view of time, like he's in time, but also outside of time. I think we get to see a little bit of that. And it's even cool how we get to look retroactively and see some of the fulfillment of these things mm-hmm. um, that maybe, you know, that Daniel didn't really understand necessarily in the moment, yeah. um, but that we get to piece together. And it's incredible. I love how faithful Daniel was 
to God. He got a little bit of insight from Gabriel in the end of what's going on, but he didn't know the full picture. He yeah. didn't know what was going to happen over the next four to 500 years. He had no idea. And a lot happened. A lot of turmoil happened for his people, but also so much good came out of it because, because of this up and down landscape, it presented the opportunity. It presented the climate for Jesus to come. Hmm. And, it's because of the faithfulness of um, the Israelites that God just continued to remain. Well, even their unfaithfulness, you know, yeah. I think I even take comfort in that they were in exile because they were unfaithful. Right. <laughs> and so, and they left and they still were unfaithful in some ways. Um, as we see whenever Jesus comes into the temple and flips tables and all these different things, um, God is just intimately concerned and he is unfolding history and he is a part of it. Yeah, and I think that it's a beautiful thing that that intimate concern is paired with ultimate sovereignty. Yeah. And I think that's a major thing that we see across the book of Daniel. I think that we especially will see in some of these dreams and, and prophecies as we get into the back end of it is that uh, at the end of the day, I mean, there are going to be kingdoms that rise and fall. Um, but even someone like Alexander the Great, who's able to <laughs> conquer all these territories in 10 years, still pales in comparison yes. um, to the God that's sovereign overall. So, um no matter yeah. what's happening in the micro or even like the macro of our nation, um, God is still sovereign and God is still intimately involved. Yeah. I think that's a beautiful thing to know and to take comfort in um, because the enemy wants us to be anxious about those things. Yeah, so. absolutely. Cool. So how do we connect a super wild passage like this uh, to, <laughs> to campus life? So I just think, it, as you said, there is so much comfort to take in that God is concerned with the long term. Mm -hmm. Like it's just, it's not just what we are doing right now. I know a couple of weeks ago, you guys um, were present for um, a preaching by Mike Bro, and he talked about the ripple effect. Yeah. Um, and how our lives ripple into other people's lives, and mm -hmm. often we will not see that. Yeah. But yet, God is still so faithful with how He is using us that we can trust that that's happening, and that's enough, mm. you know? Yeah. And so even in circumstances that we probably don't prefer, like if you're applying to a bunch of grad schools and you didn't get into your favorite one or you didn't get to any at all, God is still present with you. He is still concerned with the unfolding of the history of your life, of what's to come. And it might be unfortunate right now, but he's going to make good of what's going to come whether it's short-term good or extremely long-term good when it comes to like your children or um, your children's children or even generations beyond yeah. of what the impact of your life is going to do. And I think there's such great comfort in the unknown, in God's unknown yeah. for our lives. Yeah, and I don't think that we in our Western American culture think generationally yeah. very much. I think we're very focused on the self and what we can achieve and we're yeah. the, the primary actors in our story, right? And so there's a sense in which our faith and the history of our faith causes us or invites us to um, take on a posture of humility and see mm -hmm. us as a part of um, God's ultimate move across time. But for the Israelites, what, like, what we're talking about of like God moving generationally wouldn't have been as foreign to them. Oh, for sure. This was the norm. This is how they lived out their lives was familially like, and family even extended 
to their nation, you know, like they genuinely cared about what's to come for the future and for their children, their children's children. Individualism was just not a thing. Yeah. <laughs> it, the assumption was a familial bond mm-hmm. and perspective. Yeah. So in a, in a really odd way, I think our hope is that this dream uh, that seems random about a, <laughs> a ram and a goat actually brings uh, a weird sense of comfort and peace and uh, serves as a reminder for God's sovereignty for each and every one of you, uh, even as you navigate the you know day-to-day concerns that can often leave us so um, anxious and scattered. Yeah, what may have started as chaos when you read this passage, we hope that it ends with peace for your circumstances, for sure. Yeah, cool. Well, we hope you guys have an incredible week of group, and we look forward to uh, continuing to, to dive into the weeds and make sense of all these prophecies next week as we hit Daniel 9. So, Rachel, thank you. Thank you. And uh, we'll see you guys next time. <laughs>